0: All right, our sermon passage this morning comes from the book of Colossians chapter 2, and I'll read verses 11 through the first half of verse 14. Colossians 2:11 through 14a. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart. Free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our sermon this morning is on the reformed doctrine of baptism. And since we're an infant baptizing church, I'm going to focus on that particular aspect. Uh, in saying that, though, the first thing I should say is that baptism means the same thing for infants as it does for adults. Now that should go without saying. But in doctrinal matters, I don't think anything goes without saying. Uh, so the way I'm going to approach this subject this morning is to demonstrate from our scripture that Paul is teaching us that the New Testament sacrament of baptism comes in the place of the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. Unless you think I'm making something up, I'll refer you to the answer to question 74 of our catechism, which asks, are infants also to be baptized? And the heart of the answer is yes, for they must be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, in place of which baptism is instituted in the New Testament. So let's begin by analyzing a piece of our sermon text here. Paul says, in him you were also circumcised with, some dependent clauses, and then with the circumcision of Christ. So how does Paul say that we were circumcised with the circumcision of Christ? He says, having been buried with him in baptism. The first words of verse 12, having been buried with, it's actually just one word in the Greek, is a participle which describes the circumstances in which believers were circumcised. In other words, Paul is saying that we receive a spiritual circumcision. It's made without hands, right? It's spiritual. And that this circumcision of Christ is done by us being baptized. So Paul is stating that in the New Covenant, our baptism is our circumcision. It identifies us with Christ's death. This is actually why Paul was so adamant in opposing the, the Judaizers who wish to impose circumcision on Gentile converts to Christianity. Baptism is the sign of our having been circumcised in Christ. And that's why in the New Covenant, physical circumcision is not required. It would be to deny the efficacy of our baptism. Baptism identifies us with Christ's death. Circumcision identified you with the blood that was shed in order to ratify the covenant. And in Hebrews 9, 19 through 20, we're taught that that was the blood of Christ in proxy. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church's first public administration of the sacrament of baptism. And we see Peter actually equate baptism with circumcision. How, you ask? When Peter says, the promise is to you and to your children he's using the exact same formula that God himself used when he instituted the sacrament of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, and the Jews understood this clearly. Now we can show they're the same by proving their identical spiritual substance. God's grace in the Redeemer was, was signified in circumcision. And this consists in several aspects of the covenant promise. Now, the heart of the covenant promise was, I will be your God, a God to you, and to your children after you. The aspects of the promise, though, are this, that first, from Abraham, now circumcised, would come the Messiah. Secondly, that the Messiah would be cut off for our sins, without which we would be forever cut off. In other words, Christ was cut off so that we would not be. Thirdly, that He would regenerate us. Circumcision in the Old Testament was frequent, or regeneration in the Old Testament was frequently referred to as circumcision of the heart. In being circumcised or cut off by His death on the cross, Jesus' blood was shed for the remission of sins. So the sign of baptism more accurately signifies this. We no longer need a sacrament that signifies the wrath of God against sin. What we need is a sacrament that signifies the washing away of our sins in the blood of Christ. When Christ was cut off, that's what... He was killed when he was cut off. That's what circumcision is. His death was the reality that circumcision typified. And it is only right, therefore, that in the New Testament administration of the covenant of grace, the sacrament should no longer be bloody because Christ's blood has already been shed. Christ replaced the old bloody cutting off with a sign and seal of the washing away of sins in His blood. Uh, Now, Baptism fits the signification of circumcision in this way. It forever places its recipient into a condition. The mode is, I won't say irrelevant, but it's beside the point. The condition is what is relevant. True biblical baptism is the end result, the condition attained, not the mode of attaining it. I don't want to go too far afield, but I do think I ought to say that one's preferred mode says something about what you think the sacrament is and what it does. Throughout nearly all of church history, sprinkling or pouring has been the mode used in baptism. Now, what does the water in baptism symbolize? Across the board, no one disagrees with this, the water symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Scripture uses the same language in reference to both. It says, Baptized with water, baptized with the Holy Spirit. If the Greek preposition is and, which means with, not in. Nowhere does the Bible say baptize in water or baptize in the Spirit. It always says with, which speaks of the medium used, not the method of using it. You see, dipping makes the water a passive element into which the candidate is placed. But the Spirit's role in baptism has reference to the baptized sinner and the water. In sprinkling or pouring, the sinner is the passive recipient of the water which is active. And this signifies the fact that in regeneration, the sinner is the passive recipient of the work of the Holy Spirit. But in the burial resurrection motif of our Baptist friends, the sinner is the actor, and the water is the passive recipient of the sinner's action. So the symbolism is is completely upside down. The Holy Spirit isn't an inactive receptacle into which Christ places men. This alters the gospel pattern. It's not the work of Christ to bring souls to the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring souls to Christ. Now, what we're not saying, we're not saying that in the Christian church, circumcision was discontinued or laid aside and that now baptism is brought in, but rather we're saying baptism is the fulfillment. It occupies the same place, and as a sacrament, it means the same thing. The meaning and design of circumcision were primarily spiritual. Circumcision was the sign and seal of a spiritual covenant with spiritual blessings and promises. The same is true for baptism. Circumcision was a token of visible membership in the family of God. So is baptism. Circumcision publicly ratified entrance into that visible family. Baptism does the same. Circumcision was a sign and seal of spiritual cleansing. So is baptism. Circumcision showed the need for shed blood for the remission of sin. When God promised regeneration in the Old Testament, He said, I'll circumcise your heart. Baptism signifies this very thing. Baptism refers to the remission of sins by the blood of Christ and regeneration by His Holy Spirit. All Christians agree that circumcision as a seal of the covenant has been discontinued. Now, granting that to be true, doesn't it stand to reason that another sign and seal has to come in and take its place? And the only way you can say no to that is if you say this is a different covenant. But the New Testament refutes that as a lie. If baptism means the same thing, seals the same covenant, is a pledge of the same spiritual blessings, how could their identity even be questioned? The the Old Testament sign and seal of the righteousness of faith, having been fulfilled by Christ's death, was replaced with the sacrament of baptism, which signifies and seals the same promises. Any argument against infant baptism that could carry water would equally apply against infant circumcision. I think for a minute what it would look like had baptism not come into place of circumcision then every place in the New Testament where we read the word baptized, it would say circumcised. In which case, the Great Commission would read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, circumcising them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, if that were the case, there's not a person alive who would deny that children were to be the recipients since they would have already had a 2,000 plus year history of receiving that sacrament. Baptism, like circumcision before it, signifies and seals God's promise to us. It is not a seal of our promise to Him. Baptism is something God does to us, not something we do for Him. Making baptism to be a sign and seal of our promise to follow Jesus or obey God or whatever is like saying that the rainbow is a seal of our promise not to drown in a flood. We're going to speak next of the continuity of the covenant. We're actually working a bit backwards this morning, but we're not really working backwards from the big picture perspective because to have a proper view of the sacraments, you have to have a proper view of the church. And that's why we handle the doctrine of the church before we've come to the doctrine of the sacraments. Everything we've learned the past two weeks is foundational to what we're learning this morning. Now, we've just demonstrated that baptism comes in the place of circumcision, because it means and signifies the same things. Now, if that be the case, then there's an unspoken assumption already in place, isn't there? And that unspoken assumption is the continuity of the covenant and the continued standing of the children of believers within that covenant. Now, I'm going to present you with four arguments that demonstrate this. And the first is that all of God's dealings with His people have always been covenant-based, in which their infant children were included. When God expressed his covenant of grace with Noah, his words were, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your seed. When God expressed the same covenant of grace with Abraham, his words were, Behold, my covenant is with you and your seed after you. When we come to the New Testament administration of the covenant of grace, we see this same feature not only retained, but more conspicuously displayed. On the day of Pentecost, Peter addresses the crowd with a promise strikingly reminiscent of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, when he says, the promise is to you and to your children. Are we to assume then that the New Testament which excels the Old Testament in its benefits, its privileges, and the glory of its promises lacks this notable feature? That's absurd. Secondly, the very existence of the church membership of infants in the Old Testament is a clear indication of God's will in regard to this matter. To say that God does not will infants to be members of His visible kingdom That's a pretty hard sell, considering that Scripture gives us over 2,000 years of it clearly on display in the Old Testament. If anything's true of the Old Testament saints, it's that their children were included in the church, and as such, they were the regular recipients of the covenant seal of circumcision. When God called Abraham and established His covenant with him, not only did He embrace Abraham's infant seed in very clear terms, but He also Appointed a sacrament by which the relation of his children to the visible church would be publicly ratified and sealed and this when they were only eight days old. This covenantal church membership was a how do we call it? Self-perpetuating scheme. Every child who was circumcised received it at the hands of adults whose covenant standing had been ratified when they were but eight days old. And the New Testament expressly teaches us by the inspiration of God himself that circumcision was the sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. It was the sign and seal of God's promise in which all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. Now let's just step back for a moment so we can consider how profound the theological implications of the covenant of grace were in the Old Testament. And to do this, you just have to see what Paul says in Romans or Galatians. In Romans, Paul argues that the covenant of grace enjoyed by the New Testament church is the exact same covenant of grace God established with Abraham. And in Galatians, the passage we read in our call to worship, Paul says that if you are in Christ, regardless of your ethnicity, you are a child of Abraham according to God's promise. And let me hasten to remind you that the Galatians were not ethnic Jews. So, calling these Greek believers the offspring of Abraham, that is a monumentally significant theological statement. And it goes to the very heart of how Christians should read the Old Testament. Look, the Old Testament either applies to us with equal force and relevance as it did to the Jews before the coming of Christ, or it is Utterly irrelevant and useless for us. It can't be both ways. Thirdly, if if infants were once members and the church has remained the same, then they still are members unless some positive divine enactment excluding them can be found. It was a command of God which put these infants in the church. And unless we can find a positive uh, divine command of God throwing them out, then not only are we justified in assuming that they still have a place, we greatly err in assuming they don't. Scripture clearly teaches the perpetuity of the Abrahamic covenant. And in this covenant, not merely the lineal descendants of Abraham, but all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. We don't find even the slightest hint in the New Testament that this high privilege granted to the infant children of believers was ever withdrawn. And we are under no obligation to produce an express warrant in the New Testament for the membership of the children of believers because that warrant was given in the most formal and express terms possible 2,000 years before the New Testament was written. It has never been revoked and therefore it remains firmly and indisputably still in force. Fourthly, it is inconceivable that infant church membership would have been revoked, withdrawn, without wounding the hearts of parents and producing in them ill feelings against this new administration of the covenant of grace. Do we find hints of this anywhere in the New Testament? No, we do not. And it is only on the principle of infant church membership that the entire silence on this subject makes any sense. How else do we explain it? We see 3,000 Jewish converts to Christianity on the day of Pentecost all submit themselves to the covenant seal of baptism, during which Peter quotes God's promise to Abraham to be God to them, the promises to them and to their children. We should expect an uproar if they had been told that their children were no longer included in the covenant. If I reject infant baptism... I have to imagine that these first Christians who were all Jews and had always considered their children members of the covenant were were made to understand that when the New Testament church was set up, these covenant privileges were no longer to be enjoyed by their children and that their children were no more members of the church than the children of the pagans around them. Further, I'd be forced to believe that these early Christians were told this And they accepted it without the slightest bit of surprise or word of of complaint. Further, I'd have to believe that such a backwards change took place in the church without as much as a hint of it in any of the epistles of the New Testament. There's only one uh, explanation for the silence on this subject, and that is the continuation of infant church membership. Now, that is not an argument from silence. The silence itself is the argument. So to recap, infants of believers are included in the covenant of grace, which places them in the visible church. They are in the covenant by virtue of God's command and promise. God commanded Abraham and all believing parents after him to have the sign and seal of the righteousness of faith placed upon their children. The children of believers are included in this covenant because all who are in Christ are the true children of Abraham. God's promises apply to the children of believers despite the facts of original sin and total depravity because Christian parents believe their children, their covenant children, are God's children based on God's promise to be their God. This belief doesn't negate the need for salvation or the doctrine of original sin. It is merely believing God's promise. It is an acknowledgement that sovereign grace is the means by which God saves all his elect. Infants of believing parents are to be considered Christians based on the command and promise of God. For God has commanded that our children be distinguished from the children of unbelievers and that they be united with believers in the church. Our third point is what is signified and sealed. It's really more what is sealed because we've talked about what is signified. What is sealed in the sacrament of baptism? I want to read for you several passages of scripture that speak to this subject. And most of the verses I'm going to cite Will either assume or state the covenant standing of the children of believers, and I'll be more than happy to provide you with these scripture references and more. This is uh, this was the subject actually of my dissertation. I have lists of scriptures from here to Scotland. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are He who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. So here we see David's clear conviction of the possession of faith in a covenant child. He, be, he declares that he had faith in God before he was born. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established. Behold, children are, an inher- are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth. Shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you. Uh, that's Jeremiah 1.5. Few passages of Scripture make a clearer case for prenatal regeneration than this one. Jeremiah specifically said to have been elect and sanctified not just before he was born, before he was conceived. And this idea is not logged in as a novelty. It's simply asserted as something of which the prophet and his readers would have been aware now, our reformers clearly understood these truths. The great French reformer John Calvin wrote, The genuine children of Abraham, even before they are born, are the heirs of eternal life, since the promise of God places them in the same position with Abraham. Now, before I finish the quote, let me, let me say something about that. God's promise to Abraham was, I will be God to you and to your children after you. To his child... The promise was, I will be God to you and your children after you. To his child, the promise was, I will be God to you and to your children after you. So every generation of believers is in the same position as Abraham. And how can I not believe that this is the true promise of God when I can look out and see four to five generations at Freedon's Reformed Church on any given Sunday? Continuing with the quote, Assuredly, baptism were not in the least suitable to them were their salvation not already included in the promise I will be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. For they do not become sons of God through baptism but because they are heirs of adoption in virtue of the promise. Therefore, the church admits them to baptism. Notice what he's asserting. He isn't saying that baptism works like magic to make them children of God by adoption. No, he's saying something much stronger. He declares that they are baptized because they are already heirs of adoption. They're not baptized in order to become members of the church. They're baptized because they already are members of the church In another place, Calvin writes, The offspring of believers are born holy because their children, while yet in the womb, before they breathe the vital air, have been adopted into the covenant of eternal life, nor are they brought into the church by baptism on any other ground than because they belong to the body of the church before they were born. Now the expression, the vital air, that proves our point, doesn't it? Calvin is explicitly asserting that covenant babies while yet in the womb, before they have drawn their first breath, are to be considered true children of God by adoption. Zachary Ursinus, the primary author of our Heidelberg Catechism, asserted that the new birth, with all its benefits, belongs to the infant children of believers because they belong to the covenant and church of God. So commenting on question 74 of our catechism, he writes... Those are not to be excluded from baptism to whom the benefit of remission of sins and regeneration belongs. But this benefit belongs to the infants of the church for redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and by the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adults. Infants have the Holy Ghost and are regenerated by him. John was filled with the Holy Ghost when as yet he was in his mother's womb. And it was said to Jeremiah, Before thou camest out of the womb, I sanctified thee. If infants have the Holy Ghost, then doubtless he worketh in them regeneration unto salvation. As Peter saith, who can forbid water from them who have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? I'd like to close with a quote from the great Bible commentator Matthew Henry. Henry, in reference to his own baptism, writes, I cannot but take occasion to express my gratitude to God for my infant baptism. If God has wrought any good work upon my soul, I desire with humble thankfulness to acknowledge the influence of my infant baptism upon it. Let's pray. O God, the creator and savior of the world, who has made thyself known in the work of man's redemption as the mystery of the ever-adorable Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, three in one and one in three. Reveal in us, we beseech thee, the full power of this faith into which we have been planted by baptism, that being born of water and the Spirit, we may, by a life of holiness, be formed into thy image here and rise to thy blissful presence hereafter, there to join with the song of the seraphim in praising thee, world without end. We now pray the prayer that you taught your disciples, saying,